Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Australian Politics Live. I'm Catherine Murphy, host of the show, and with me in uh, the pod cave hasn't been the case for quite some time, and here she is. Guest appearance. Guest Gabriel appearance. Gabrielle Chan. Gabrielle Chan. She's in the pod cave. Always a good time in the pod cave. And with us is Tim Watts. It's great to be with you. Long time listener, first time guest. <laughs> and Tim is a Labor MP. If you've not come across him in your travels, you've got a shadow ministry now, I, which I, of course I should have reminded myself about before we came in. No, that, that's right. I'm now the Shadow Assistant Minister for Communications and Cybersecurity. Yes, correct. And uh, and he has written a really, really fascinating book, uh, which I read over the weekend and I enjoyed very much, broadly on the theme of multiculturalism. Uh, and that's where we're going to go, basically, in this conversation over the next little bit. We're going to draw Tim out on some of his observations uh, in the, the book, which is called The Golden Country. The Golden Country. Australia's Changing Identity. Yes, because I left my copy outside the pod cave, helpfully. Uh, so we're going to get into the book and we might just bring it back into some contemporary issues because those issues really can't be avoided, can they? So we may that, as that well. is my day job. Exactly. We may as well. We may as well do that. So, Gabby, do you want to kick off? Because you've got some thoughts, I think, to go I would like to kick off because this book, um, in a sense, has been a long time coming, not from you, but in Australia, and um, I really wish I would have written it first, <laughs> but, which is a compliment, oh right? You're starting with <laughs> writer in oh I could oh say God. the same thing about you. Yeah. Uh, so why this book? Why now? Because the context for thinking about Asian Australians like me with my background um, is not sort of front and centre in some ways, notwithstanding the Gladys Liu uh, debate at the moment, but the latest uh, immigration group to to really be in the public space has been the Muslim community. So why this book and why now? I think the answer to that is, is pretty personal, Gab. So the impetus from this book came from my kids getting a little bit older and I was doing the dad things that my dad did with me when I was a kid and you know, I grew up in country Queensland and my father sort of passed on the family folklore and, you know, the who we were type conversations on these long road trips through Western Queensland. He'd say, you know, your great, great grandfather did this and, you know, then your uncle did that. And that's the sort of the way we did the family history. And I was starting to do that with my kids. Um, the problem was is that my kids are Eurasian Australian. My wife's a migrant from Hong Kong. Um and my ancestors didn't really want them to be a part of the nation that they were building. Um, my 
great, 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 great grandfather, Charles Nantes, um, was a member of the anti-Chinese leagues um, in, in Geelong. Um, that triggered the, the walk from Rome. So it triggered the poll tax that, that blocked Chinese migrants from coming into Australia. And I was driving through Ararat with my son, where there's now the, the Gumsung um, Chinese Heritage Museum. And it was telling that story of the walk from Rome. And I thought, this is an interesting uh, thread to pull on, um, you know, why my ancestors didn't want my present day family to be a, a part of the country that they were building. And so how is that personal perspective from your family what your family is now, how has that changed the way that you think about this issue? Yeah, so I, I grew up with a sort of a really uh, unalloyed love of Australia. You know, I just thought we, we were the country that um, had, had got it right. You know, we were halfway between the Yanks, halfway between the Poms. Um, you know, the, the social hierarchies didn't uh, matter. We, you know, we were tackling the economic inequalities um, you know, sort of laugh at the rest of the world for not knowing how good they could have it. Um, and sort of after I, I, I got married and saw the, the, the country that my kids were growing up in, I sort of started to appreciate that their experience of Australia would be different to mine. Um, and, and that started making me think about, you know, well, what kind of country did my ancestors build and what kind of country could I be building for, for my kids? So... Those Australian values of mateship, egalitarianism, fair go, irreverence, um, I think they're still really powerful values. The reality is, though, is that they've been denied to many people in our country over, over time and, you know, in a time where Asian Australians now comprise, depending how you measure it, somewhere between 12-13% of the population, bigger than the African-American community in the US, um, forecast to reach the size of the Hispanic community in the US, we all really want to have a conversation about um, the way that that community has been treated in our national story. Can I burst in briefly and just say, you you said, Tim, um, that uh, you've learned that the way your kids will experience Australia is different to the way you experienced Australia growing up. Did you know that before you got married and had children? Was that something that that, that you understood or was this a, a, something that revealed itself to you through your lived experience? It's interesting. I, I, I think I probably would have known about it at, at an intellectual level, um, but Tim Sapamason, the former race discrimination commissioner who's written at length about this and is, I think, probably the, the preeminent expert in, in the data of the, the bamboo ceiling in Australia, that the differential treatment of Asian Australians in, in leadership positions, he phrases it as um, uh, the advocates on this issue now have skin in the game. Mm. Um, and I, I just sort of really do feel that ar- around my kids, like the idea that they could grow up with a different relationship to the country that I did, um, not being able to love Australia in the same way that I did in an uncomplicated way in the past and in a more complicated way today. Um, yeah, that, that was a, 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 an itch in the back of my mind. Hmm. Just before we get to the history of Australia and the wider uh, white Australia policy, you had a very visible experience uh, watching Sam Dastiari uh, be essentially personally attacked in a bar, um, verbally attacked and called, I think, a monkey. Mm. And you stepped in and um, I think one of the comments were that you made was what race is dickhead, <laughs> which it may have become I a T-shirt. It remains a very good line, it must be said. Not, not, not pre-workshopped, I should point out. <laughs> so, you, so you described the physical feeling that you felt at the time that that happened as a, I think, 
think, a heart-pumping and adrenaline-riddled um, moment, not in a good way, which I think a lot of people who have um, been subject to racial attacks feel as well, and I've felt that myself. Uh, just talk me through that. Like, did you expect that? Well, I didn't expect to be dealing with fascists in my political career, um, if you're asking that. I think that's a, a new development in the political uh, landscape in Australia. But I think part of the dynamic of that event, so this happened at a pub in my electorate in Footscray, and Footscray is a very diverse um, part of Australia. Uh, two-thirds of my constituents born overseas or their parents born overseas. Um, and at that pub, pub the, the two bartenders were Asian-Australian. Uh, my staff member who was with me then was Asian-Australian. Um, Sam obviously was not an Anglo. And then you had these three big, burly Anglo guys come in, you know, with every cliche under the sun, you know, go back to where you came from, you're a terrorist, all, the whole box and dice. And I think sort of weighing up being the only non-fascist Anglo in the room, <laughs> um, you know, it, it sort of felt like the impetus for action uh, was on me there. Um, and yeah, I, I do get a sense of that, that calculation you have to make of like, are these, are these people just f stupid bigots or are they stupid bigots who are also dangerous? Um, you know, is this situation going to devolve into actual violence? Um, and, and, you know, and, and what happens then? Um, yeah, like it, it, it is a visceral experience and it's a, it's a, it was a tiny insight for me into an experience that many of my friends who are people of colour have experienced many times in their lives. Yeah, I mean, I say it's the, possibly the whitest person in this conversation. I mean, it's not a competition, but I think I think I've won. Um, the the thing is, you do. That's why I asked you about. Did you know prior to your marriage? I mean, I know obviously you're a highly intelligent person who knew at an intellectual level. I tell you what, like, spend any time. You mentioned Tim Supomasan a minute ago. Spend oh, any yeah. time <laughs> if you happen I to be tagged in a Twitter yep. conversation with him or with Penny Wong for that matter, spend any time in that slipstream and all of a sudden a sewer opens. Mm. It really does, that you that you don't encounter. You, you just don't. You know it exists, but you don't encounter it. And I, that's, that's why I asked you the question, not to, you know, sort of ask an invasive personal question, but it's just I know myself. I mean, I know intellectually racism exists, but it's like when I'm in the slipstream of Tim... Or Penny, it's like, oh, oh my God. It's like, I, d I don't know that people necessarily understand that unless they have stood next to a person either figuratively or literally mm. in the sort of situation you describe. Mm. So anyway, just a comment from the corner. <laughs> History, white Australia policy. We haven't got time, obviously, to go through the whole lot, but the book charts the amazing history, the slide to the white Australia policy the um, the amazing story of the Australian diplomat Robert Laurie in the 1960s with a lamp over his shoulder at an overseas posting um, so he could highlight what colour skin the people were that he was interviewing um, on the Pantone chart and decide whether they were European-looking enough. Mm. Um, all the way to Billawila, the, the case of Billawila where where the family, you know, has been ripped out of a community that they have really been embedded in. What do you think is behind that kind of single-minded, you know, I-dotting, T-crossing um, place that a lot of our immigration policy has been 
like in the past and, and continues to be in some sectors today? Yeah, I mean, Australia is not alone in having a, uh, a, a tortured relationship with race as a colonial society. Um, you know, America, Canada, New Zealand, they've all had um, uh, racially exclusionary immigration laws. Uh, our bad luck, however, was for that that rise in racially exclusionary thinking and, and lawmaking to happen at our moment of federation, at our when we were working out what it meant to be Australian. Um, so those those early Australian colonists, like my ancestors, um, they really and, and quite explicitly defined what it meant to be Australian in explicit contrast with their stereotypes of what they thought Asia was, and particularly Chinese people. Um, so they wanted to sort of define the, the boundaries of Australian identity um, as you know ind- independent and egalitarian and irreverent and and you know practical and you know, enduring in the face of the of the natural environment. So they constructed this view of the of the sort of the, the, the Chinese other that was the opposite of all of that, and and that really fed into all of our institution building and symbol building for more than a hundred years. You know the, the White Australia policy changed our demography. But the thinking that fed into the White Australia policy really shaped our institutions uh, for more than a century. And so today, where this the, this nation of contradictions, these two Australias, and it's a, a point that really jumped off the page when I was reading your book, Gab, because you make this point as well. Um, and I think there is an enormous disconnect between the Australia of our general community, um, so the lived experience of Australian society today, and the Australia of our national imaginings and our institutions which does not reflect and represent the Australia of today in any form today. I mean, our, our political discourse, our media coverage, uh, it's more reactionary, more insular um, than, than the lived experience in our community. It's a, it's a real issue. And in a way, it's an artificial construct because as all of us are storytellers here and you describe a lot of stories, you know, Billy Singh, the Mm -hmm. sniper, who was very much um, decorated and and part of the Anzac legend, but you wouldn't see a Chinese face as a part of the Anzac legend. And and part of your plea in the book is to go back and think about these commonalities of the values that we hold dear as as so-called Australian and retell the Australian story with a more diverse face. Is that fair? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Chinese Australians uh, didn't deny those Australian values when they arrived. There wasn't anything intrinsic to them that was incompatible with that Australian identity that was trying to be built then. We denied those values to them. You know, we denied that egalitarianism, that mateship uh, to them. And Billy Singh is the paradigm example of this. I mean, this bloke is a walking epitome of, you know, Russell Ward's Australian legend. You know, he was a, a opening fast bowler for the Proserpine Cricket Club. He was a, a drover. He was a, a shooter. He could shoot the tail off a piglet from 100 yards. He was a joker. And at Gallipoli, um, he was one of our most decorated Anzacs. Um, in fact, he still holds the record in the ADF for the most individual kills by a sniper, as macabre as that metric is. Um, but he's missing from the Anzac story because Charles Bean, you know, the great historian of Anzac who wrote the literal history of Anzac, a 12-volume, thousands-of-page story that mentions 8,000 soldiers by name and, and is distinctive for, for telling the story of Gallipoli, not from the perspective of the generals or the tacticians, but from the individual soldiers there. You know, like Bill Brown from from Ballarat as a boilermaker and in this battle he did this and you know part of why he did this was because that was how he was raised on the land. Despite all that... 
Singh doesn't get a mention in the official histories. He gets a, a footnote um, to a picture. And we now know that the reason for that is because Bean was suffused in this white Australia thinking. You know, he was someone that genuinely believed he had an obligation to fight for white Australia. In the official histories, he, he writes that Australia was at risk of racial suicide if we didn't ma- maintain the white Australia policy, that it was the only thing that united uh, the Anzacs that was brought around for Australia was to fight for a white Australia. We, you know, we have forgotten all of this because that's not who we are now. We've mm-hmm. out- outgrown that. But we can't understand, I mean, if we deny our history, we can't understand the way we've grown to be the country we are today. You know, denying that history denies our ability to grow. Really, I think it denies the greatest achievement of Australia over the last um, century, which is outgrowing those beginnings. Mm-hmm. Modern history, um, you can't get away from John Winston Howard and the contradiction that you point out in the book and has been pointed out Um in the past around how he, on the one hand, had this history uh, and talked about in the 80s, um, maybe we should pull back from some of the Asian migration um, to also presiding over the largest intake, essentially the policy decisions that made your electorate as diverse as it is today. How do you think about him? And you talk about him as stifling any discussion on race and identity in Australia, even amongst progressives. Just talk me through that. Yeah, so so Howard's another sort of personal um, story because when Howard was talking about too many Asians coming to Australia, that's when my wife arrived in the country. Like He was talking about her. <laughs> he was wrong. <laughs> I mean, he's been proven to be wrong in spades. Um, but that did add a sort of a personal edge to this. And the, the, the contradiction, the irony that you talk about is that Howard was the first Prime Minister to really turn the dial up on the volume of immigration. He, he made a series of changes to our immigration system that I can go into if you want. But the point is, is that it's the first boom of migration since the end of the White Australia policy. So while Whitlam got rid of it, under Hawke-Keating, migration levels were fairly low. So we only saw the practical change in the diversity of our population happen as a result of Howard. Now, the irony is, is that in the context of 100 years of nation building through that prism of white Australia, this is a significant thing, but Howard broke our ability to talk about it as a nation. He once said, as a direct quote, I know what an Australian is and always will be. And he wasn't talking about Indigenous Australians. You know, he had this view that Australian identity was you know, carved in stone by Sir Henry Parks and passed on down to us uh, via Charles Bean and Donald Bradman. Um, but with 100 years of defining Australian identity through the exclusion of Asian Australians, we have to talk about what it means to be Australian again today, redefine those those national symbols, that iconography of what it means to be Australian, because we've got a problem with representation in this country. It's almost like Australian multiculturalism works fantastically at the community level. Um, outcomes of migrants um, in employment, in education, in health um, are better than in the US and Canada than the UK peer countries. But the moment we're asked to imagine an Asian Australian as a representative of us, it breaks down. So our representative figures in leadership and our institutions are at half and a third of the level of Canada, the UK um, and, and, and uh, America. I mean, in our parliament, we have four, maybe five Asian Australians, depending on, on how that you count that. Proportionate to our population, we should have more than 30 the argument is always that uh, there's a generational lag, you know, that eventually that will catch up. Do you buy that? 
Well, that, that's something that a lot, of, a lot of the Asian Australians that I spoke with argued themselves, actually. Um, so there is a view from, from some people that, you know, this will eventually fix itself. But we should be clear, um, you know, the Hong Kong Chinese Australian community has been here since the 80s. Mm. You know, the Vietnamese community has been here since the late 70s, early 80s. There's a new generation, like a second generation of, of kids from those communities who is now demanding um, inclusion, demanding uh, equality in these institutions, and it's not happening. Well, we are clearly shit at it. I mean, <laughs> let's be honest. I mean, like, we've got we've got to a stage where, you know, we're only just now reaching... Um, uh, you know, a group of, of Indigenous representatives mm. in our parliament. You know, you talk about uh, Chinese Australians being an, an established ethnic group in this country because they've been here for decades. I mean, crikey, we're, we're only just working out how to do Indigenous representation and, and not even well, let alone trying to catch up on, on uh, you know, successive waves of migrants and their and their appearance in the parliament. But what do you think about it, Tim, though? Is it that, um, is it a combination of factors? Is it that we are just shit, right, at this stuff, that, that as you say in the book, I think very eloquently, that there's a, sort of, there's a gap between what the community looks like and what representative bodies in Australia look like, right? Is that because sort of representative bodies are just shit and intrinsically hostile to newcomers? Or is there a reluctance on the part of uh, the of ethnic groups or Indigenous people or whatever to step into the cauldron that we inhabit? Can, and, can, and can I just cut in there as well, that reluctance, I, I feel like it's there's a real reluctance there. And well, when I, I was told as a young... Mm. Chinese reporter, you know, when I I reported about a story on crime in the Chinese community, uh, one of the Chinese elders said to me, we don't pull our shirt up and show our belly. And then just so on Murph's point, also add to it the split in the two generational migrants where my father's generation was very quiet, kept head down, bum up, worked to the a different type of migrant coming in, but also the second generations, like the Benjamin Laws, who's quite happy to say, you know, F off. Mm. Like, I am here and I am proud. And I see that as a real split in the community. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that the honest answer is there are multiple factors driving this. Um, some of it is sort of a demand side thing from the Asian Australian community. Um, but that's a much less significant issue in the second generation than it was in, in previous generations. Some of it might be the way our democratic institutions are structured that is different to the US, UK. Like we don't do racial segregation geographically in the same way that they do, and that might flow through to democratic representation in some ways. But I think the, 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 the thing that bells the cat that this is a broader issue is that it's across every institution in Australia. Like, believe it or not, our parliament is one of the better performers in Asian Australian representation. So somewhere between 12 and 13% of the community, um, it's between 1% and 3% of leaders across parliament, our ministry, um, our corporate Australia, so that's boards and C-suites, um, our universities and our public service, which is worst of all. Now, those are institutions that aren't affected by democratic structures. It is something intrinsic to us and my hypothesis, I don't have, you know, hard evidence linking this, but just the way that I feel that this is working is that the Australian legend, you know, that that symbology, that idea that what it was to be Australian was to be a white man on the land mm -hmm. was just so powerful in our Australian identity. It shaped everything. 
Um, and we haven't had a more powerful symbol, symbol, a more powerful iconography come to replace it. Now, some people say, oh, well, it's, it's multiculturalism. You know, it's, it's a civic democracy. That's what unites us, you know, like our belief in democracy and our belief in multiculturalism. Well, that, that, that just doesn't have the guts to unite a country. Um, you know, we can't be a nation of difference respecters. Like that, that doesn't bring people together. I mean, I, I do believe that, the, it, that cultural things that link us together are important. And I think they're out there. Um, but we've got to t- start taking national identity and nation building at the symbolic level seriously again. And we haven't done that since Howard because the progressive side of politics was burnt by the, 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 the culture wars on, on, on race and identity. Um, and we've sort of shied away from it for 20 years now. And we've had 20 years of very high migration rates, diversifying population. And we've never really spoken about it. The, the, there's obviously a moral reason to do it, but there's an economic reason too, isn't there? Because you talk about Australia being at the fork of the road now and a lot of countries competing for very highly skilled migrants uh, and people are thinking twice about Australia now. And I I love that uh, Chinese program, the China's Thousand Talents Plan, Mm. which is uh, a very (laughs) Chinese label to get, (laughs) essentially get overseas students come back to China to, to grab those skills and, mm. and it's had a, a significant effect on the number of students going back to China because they see opportunity there. Yeah, they used to be referred to as seaweed, the Chinese students going out because they'd stay and now they're sea turtles, they, they, they right. come back. Um, but, I mean, the reason that I called the book The, the Golden Country, though, was because it, it's fundamentally an optimistic book. You know, like we do a hell of a lot right in this country and a hell of a lot better than any other country in the world. I, I am one of these people that believes we are the most successful multicultural country in the world. And I get that people you know, roll their eyes at that now. But just on the evidence of, of survey results and migrant outcomes on community attitudes, it, it's pretty unambiguous. Um, so there's a positive story to tell there. And if we could utilise the, the, the talents within our own nation, you know, at, at the cusp of the Asian century, um, at the edge of um, a, a region that is the, the, the centre of the geostrategic contests of our time, the centre of economic growth of our time. Um, and if we could combine this, this incredibly uh, diverse, talented young population uh, with um, the, the open liberal society and institutions that we have, we'd be in the box seat in this nation. So I have a very optimistic view of that. But we've got to start doing things differently from the way we've done it for the last 20 years. It's sort of been on cruise control for the last 20 years and we've forgotten what has made Australian migration so successful. Um, you know, our settlement programs used to be world leading. You know, in the last 10 years in particular, they've become securitised. Mm. So we think about immigration in terms of border protection, about how we're keeping people out of this country instead of in terms of citizenship and nation building, which is how we're using migration to build this country, to Mm. shape this country. We've only got a couple of minutes left, guys, so we need to do Gladys Liu, I reckon. Yes, we certainly do. So how do you... What do you say about um, Chinese Australians or Asian Australians who are thinking about a career in politics uh, and see what's playing out around Gladys Liu, which is not to say that she that the processes haven't gone wrong, and you know she's made some pretty interesting <laughs> decisions, Inter- interventions, uh, <laughs> interventions. Um, what, what do you make of that? Because on the one hand, you know, there there are serious questions to answer. Mm. On the other, as a Chinese Australian, I think, mm, 
<laughs> There's a little too much glee around some of the comments that are being made right now. Yeah, so the, the, the day after the uh, the Gladys Lee stuff broke in Parliament, I was at the Asian Australian Leadership Summit, which is an incredibly inspiring couple of days organised by ANU, PwC and AsiaLink. Hundreds of Asian Australian leaders coming together to talk about you know, these bamboo ceiling issues, like their place in Australia. And there was a lot of talk about this issue. There's a lot of anxiety. People do not enjoy being in the gun of the Australian political debate. No one enjoys that, let alone a whole community. Um, I would argue very strongly it's not Labor who put that community in the gun. Um, it was the Prime Minister who, I think, very irresponsibly and very foolishly conflating issues of individual conduct with structural racism faced by a community. These are both legitimate issues, but they're separate in this context. The reality is Australia just has to get better at dealing with these issues. They're not going away. Structural racism in Australia will be with us for a while. The threat of foreign interference will be with us for a while. We have to be able to talk about both of these issues without conflating them and damaging our approach to the other one. And I think back on the last week in Parliament and think, how different would that debate have been if we had had 30 Asian Australians across the House of Reps and the Senate? If we had had 20 plus Asian Australians in the press gallery, if our democratic institutions looked like our community, how differently would that have played out? It wouldn't have been a question like a referendum on Gladys Liu as the representative of the Australian Chinese community, because there would have been a dozen other representatives there saying, uh, you know, with a, with a completely different perspective on things. Um, the narrowness of our representation sort of increases the stakes of this in a way that's very unfair. Now, Gladys Liu should not have to be the representative of the Australian Chinese community, and it was extremely foolish and unfair for the Prime Minister to make her one. Well, you know, judging from this conversation, that you need to go and get a copy of this book. So we both, Gabby and I, encourage you to do that. It's a very good read. You should have a look at it. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Tim. We appreciate it. Thank you to Miles Martignoni and Hannah Izzard for production as always. You know the drill. Uh, leave ratings, reviews, tell all your friends. Uh, this is slightly strange in terms of sequencing. As you're listening to this, I will be in America, uh, but I will be back next week with uh, tales of Donald Trump and uh, Scott Morrison and other intriguing things. Until then, be well. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrir. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today... We're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us.